Please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy. You'll find the notes this morning's message in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text on the back of the notes. We're pausing our study of Habakkuk um, to take two weeks to look at uh, 2 Timothy 3, 10 to 17. Last week, Mitchell McClure went through the majority of the passage, and I will really only be focusing on about a verse and a half this morning. Um, But it's one of the most magnificent, probably well-known passages in regards to the authority, the inerrancy, the sufficiency of Scripture. Um, this is, in fact, as I went through the sermon archive, it's the third time we've hit this, I've hit this passage in 15 years. Um, and so, in some respects, I'm going to try to hit some notes, bring out some factors that may have not been brought out before. But I want to begin by putting the text in its context. And I want to do that by asking you a question. What plans, what preparations, what disciplines, what thought have you given to making sure you persevere in faith? What, what confidence, as one conference speaker I heard put it, do you have that you'll wake up loving, trusting Christ tomorrow, next week, next month, five years from now? What, what plans, what provisions, what thought have you given to finishing your race and your course? Um, I, I think that question is critical in understanding our text because it's clearly the dominant theme in 2 Timothy. Um, Pastor Vody Bauckham summarized 2 Timothy this way. Timothy, they're about to kill me for preaching the gospel, and when they do, preach the gospel till they kill you. That's about as good as a short pithy summary there is. Let me just give you a brief tour through the letter. Paul is at the end of his life. He's writing from prison. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, um, we see the focus on Paul's concern that after he dies, Timothy might finish. It's all over this letter. Paul is at the end of his life. And sadly, all around Paul is apostasy. We, we know this. We know people who once professed faith in Christ who now do so no longer. The modern term is their faith was deconstructed. Biblical term is falling away, apostia. And it's the same in every age. Briefly, just look with me here. Paul begins by commending Timothy's faith. Verse 5 of chapter 1, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you for this reason. I remind you to fan and to flame the gift of God. Verse 8, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering. Go down to um, 13 and 14. Follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And then we get this terrible sentence. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. At the end of his life, a man pouring himself out in ministry, all those named brothers, all those who professed faith in Christ in Asia Minor, turned on Paul. They're unwilling to suffer reproach for the sake of the name. They're unwilling to stand by him. 
And so there's a mass apostasy, a mass shrinking back. And so Paul, from his cell, wants to provide for Timothy the means, the encouragements, that that would not happen to him. Keep, keep going with me. Chapter 2, verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The baton needs to keep being passed. Even as Paul is passing it to Timothy here, Timothy, you make sure you find young men who are faithful that you can pass that baton to us and that they will, and that they will. That's part of what it means to guard the good deposit. Then again in verse three, share in suffering as a good shoulder. Verse eight of chapter two, remember Jesus Christ. And then look down to 2.17 where we see some more evidences of falling away. Uh, verse 16, avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth saying the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Paul is in prison. He's getting reports about these former professing Christians who've now embraced heretical doctrine and it's infecting others. Um, last week, Mitchell began by reading and starting in chapter 3, verse 1, about the difficulty in the last times. Not only are things bad in Paul, say they're going to get worse. And our passage here really is centered in chapter 3. We're in verses 1 through 9. Paul, there's only two commands this entire chapter, two instructions. Verse 1, understand this. Timothy, get, get your mind fixed around the fact that it's not going to get better, it's going to get worse. It's going to get harder. It's going to get more difficult. And then the only other command in chapter 3 is in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned. And it's in that context that Paul declares the statement about Scripture. This truth about Scripture's inerrancy, its sufficiency, its profitability, serves to encourage Timothy to persevere. And it sets up one of the greatest charges in Scripture. Our, our passage that we're going to look at specifically, 16 and 17, I want to read that right through 4.2. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete Equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not submit to sound teaching. But having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That's the danger that's coming. And so Paul is preparing Timothy to persevere. He's preparing him to finish his course by reminding him of suffering, of charging him with doing ministry, passing on the word. But a key element in Timothy's perseverance is his confidence in Scripture. And indeed, as I 
read the little bit I do of those who fall away, especially the more big name evangelicals. They're people whose books I've read who now repudiate the name of Christ. It's terrifying. People I went to seminary with. And frequently, if not most frequently, that the place the rot sets in is in there beginning to waffle on the belief that the scripture is the word of God. Or perhaps there are portions of scripture we shouldn't trust or cannot trust. So I think it's not for nothing that Paul here, at the end of chapter three, makes this declaration of scripture's God-breathedness its sufficiency, its usefulness, because he wants Timothy to continue in it. He knows a key ingredient of Timothy's perseverance, faithful to the end, is for Timothy to remain convinced, confident, to, as our title, persevere in trusting Scripture. And I would suggest for you, how do you hope, intend to finish faithfully? Well, one right answer would be, well, God will hold me fast. We sing after all, he will hold me fast. Amen, he will. How will he hold you and me fast? He, he uses means. And one of the key means is his word. If you intend to remain faithful, you must also remain faithful in your confidence, your conviction, your trust in God's word. That's the importance of this passage. You want to be able to say what Paul says in chapter four, verse seven. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Another tragic word in verse nine and 10. Do your best to come to me for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me. Demas, this is terrifying. Demas is listed as a co-laborer with Paul in other New Testament epistles. His name is in scripture as a useful minister. Here, he's abandoned Paul because he agaped the world. He loved the world. Rather than Christ's appearing at the end of verse eight, that must have been a shock to Paul to work alongside someone in his missionary endeavors only to have them love something more than Christ and to abandon him. Verse 14 of chapter four, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. Verse 16, another just sad statement. This great man, this apostle who wrote more letters of the New Testament than anyone has just a handful of faithful servants and friends. He makes this in verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. That's the backdrop of Paul's instruction to Timothy. That's his concern. And that's how this truth about scripture's inerrancy, sufficiency, profitability fits in a letter dripping with, you want to finish the race, Timothy. You need to endure suffering. You need to not fall away. That's the place it takes. So I want to suggest to you for the time we have left this, left this morning is to really just look at a verse and a half that we could spend weeks on. There are three truths here that you and I must persevere in trusting. Three, three practical truths as relates to God's word. And the first, and I'm just going to focus on three words in our passage. All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is is God breathed. Here the focus is on totality. Totality. Now we get 
easily enough from Jesus himself, his view of inerrancy of the Old Testament. I'll give you one or two brief examples, but that really isn't much up for debate, that Jesus viewed the Old Testament cover to cover as the word of God. He quoted it as God's word. He reasoned from it tightly. One example, Luke 11.51 is just rebuking the Pharisees. He tells them that the blood of Abel, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary will be required of this generation. And that's remarkable because the Jewish ordering of the Old Testament does not parallel our Bible's ordering. They refer to it as the Tanakh. And what Jesus has done is, is cited Abel, the first martyr, and then Zechariah, because I believe our Second Chronicles is their last book. They have the same number of books. The arrangement's different. And so here, Jesus, by grabbing Abel to Zechariah, is affirming everything in between. We, we know what Jesus' Bible looks like, and by grabbing the first and the last, he's affirming everything in between. Or another example in, in Luke 16, 16, through 17, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier, this is Jesus. Jesus is the most radical inerrantist you'll come across. J Jesus is the most staunch defender of inerrancy. This jaw-dropping statements. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. And sometimes when I'm dealing with more liberal mainline Christians and they, they, they say we worship the Bible or we're, we're biblicists or whatever, I, look, man, I'm just trying to read my Bible like Jesus. I'm just trying to follow my master and he seems to have a really high view of the Old Testament. It's God breathed. Keep in mind, so is the universe. How did God create? He spoke. The same word from the mouth of the Lord that created all things and sustains all things is the source of the Old Testament. And the Son of God, the Word of God, testified over and over as he reasoned from the Scripture. How did he defend himself against temptation from the devil? He cited the Old Testament. He didn't just declare it to be the word of God, but he acted upon it. So the entire Old Testament is God-breathed. I got a great question in ABF last week, but what's the warrant for the New Testament? So the first point in the argument, when we say all of Scripture, what does Paul mean by all of Scripture? He at least means the Old Testament. Clearly, that's what Jesus meant. But the entire New Testament is also God-breathed. So work with me on this argument to get there. It's a little more... It's got a few more steps in it. First, Jesus predicted this. Turn to John 16. I'm only going to ask you to turn to a couple passages, but turn me to John 16. Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples. He's preparing them for his departure. He tells them it's really to their advantage that he's going to go away because if he goes away, they'll receive the gift of the helper, the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to tell them what good work the Holy Spirit will do. Verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, and he will speak not on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. There's the promise that the apostles will receive the Holy Spirit who will bring to mind 
bring truth to their minds and tell them of what is to come. There's the, the basis of inspiration moving forward. But I got a, a better example for you even than that. Jesus predicted it. That's the blank. Turn to 1 Timothy 5. And, and I'd, you may want to make a mark here. This is a fantastic passage, especially if you get in arguments sometimes with Catholics. One of the most common Catholic objections I'll get is we wouldn't have a New Testament if it weren't for a Catholic council. And they're referring to the Council of Constantine in the 4th century, early 4th century, where they came up with a list of books. And according to Catholic epistemology, Catholic views of the church, the church authorizes scripture. The scripture isn't scripture until the church says it is. And so the church and the church alone, and the Catholic, with a capital C Catholic church, alone has the authority to tell us what scripture is. And so the argument from Catholic theologians frequently is, you Protestants wouldn't have a New Testament if it weren't for us Catholics. You're dependent upon our canons, our judgments, our councils gave you your Bible. What do you say to that? I say 1 Timothy 5.18 to that. This is jaw-droppingly awesome. Sorry, I get excited about this. Um, let's read 1 Timothy 5.17-18. It will not immediately jump out to you why this is so significant, but it is. Okay. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For thus scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, how many of you guys with footnotes in your Bibles know what he just quoted? He quoted two passages. The first one, if you've got little footnotes where you've got a study Bible, it'll tell you is Deuteronomy 24, 15, which makes sense. Paul says, the scripture says, the, uh, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads the grain. Where is the laborer deserves his wages from? Luke's gospel. That's Luke 10, 7. Now let me pause and unpack the implications. First off, you can't say, no, no, this is just a saying of Jesus. I, I suggested in the book of James that James may not be referring to any written text, but rather what he and others had heard Jesus publicly say, but that won't do here because the introductory formula that governs both citations is the scripture, literally the writing, Paul's term for scripture. The writing says this is a document Paul is citing, not an oral story. And Paul, who was a Pharisee, Paul, who speaks about the inerrancy of Scripture, Paul, who elevates the Word of God, get this, cites Deuteronomy, the Romans of the Old Testament, next to the Gospel of Luke. Wow. But let's take some implications a little further. He does so without any explanation or apology. What I mean is, it sure seems as though Paul assumes Timothy shares this view in common with him. Paul doesn't quote Luke and then say, I have a revelation, a mystery from the Lord to tell you that Luke wrote something and you should receive it. No, no, he just, just quotes it in passing. Which means he expects Timothy to be more familiar with Luke than we are. Because unless you knew the citation without looking at your footnotes, Paul's assuming more of Timothy than of most of us. Which means... Paul thinks Luke is scripture. Paul thinks Timothy thinks Luke is scripture. Paul thinks Timothy is so familiar with Luke, he can cite a quarter of a verse and Timothy's going to track with him. Whoa. Think, think of the implications. Then when you turn to the end of 1 Timothy, we learn 
in verse 21 of chapter 6, that grace be with you is plural. You all in the south, right? Paul expected this letter to be shown to those at Ephesus. And again, because there's no apology made, there's no explanation, the assumption is this is common understanding. Paul cites the Gospel of Luke next to Deuteronomy. And Timothy understood it to be Scripture. The Ephesian church understood it to be Scripture and all without a counsel. Because Jesus' sheep hear his voice. And somehow, I don't know how, and here's your blank, the church immediately recognized it. What happened in the fourth century was not the church authorizing Scripture. It was the church recognizing Scripture. When persecution came to an end and Constantine made Christianity legal, the various churches came together and we've got a letter from Paul and we've got a letter from James and they came together and they tried to sort it out and that was very helpful. But it's evident from right here, the church did not need a council. They recognized the New Testament as it was being written. Very quickly, in, uh, in 2 Peter, Peter recognizes Paul's writings of Scripture. These are the only two New Testament references of the New Testament. 1 Timothy 5.18 is the only actual citation of it. And uh, in 2 Peter 3, we get this. And you might imagine Peter may have some hard feelings at Paul after he publicly rebuked him for you know, eating with the Jews only and then eating with the Gentiles when the people from Jerusalem are gone. But he doesn't. And he says this in, in 2 Peter 3. There, let's start in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters. Peter's aware of letters. When he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Ooh, Peter just put multiple letters of Paul in the category of scripture with the other scriptures. So it doesn't require a fourth century council to give us the New Testament. There is ample evidence within the documents of the New Testament itself that the church was recognizing Scripture as it was being written. Peter's aware of Paul's letters, and he's without any apology, without any defense, referencing them as Scripture. Jesus said his sheep hear his voice, and that's what we see here happening. All of Scripture is God-breathed. The church immediately recognized it. Point C, practically in our day, here's the danger. Most Christians will affirm the doctrine of the inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture. The major attack on inerrance of an inspiration was largely in the 80s, 90s. Now the attacks shifted. There are practical ways that we can abandon faithfulness to God's word. And so here's point C. There can be no canon within the canon. Canon is the Latin phrase for measurement or rule. So when you talk about the canon of Scripture, you're talking about the list of books. You're talking about the measurement of what Scripture is. Different disciplines can have canons or rules. And so we talk about the canon and the canon being closed. Well, the danger is to have a Bible within a Bible. To have a Bible, but some really, really Bible Bible parts. 
And that's practically how this can happen. Have you ever met people who just are only interested in what the red letters say? The red letters are the special parts. The red letters are the really inspired parts. And the rest of it's, eh, you know, it's something. But those red letters, man. And what you're doing is setting up a canon within a canon, a Bible within a Bible. Don't, don't do that. Don't do that. There can be no canon within the canon. I'll suggest two or three ways that we might do that. First, do not pit Paul against Jesus. Do not pit Paul against Jesus. The reason why Paul comes under attack is Paul says the things that our culture finds most offensive. Even the mainline Christians like Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount, turning the other cheek, loving your neighbor, going the extra mile, our culture loves that. And so they like to hold on to Jesus. And it's Paul, after all, who says the difficult things about homosexuality, about marriage, about men's and women's roles, about church structure and church leadership. And so Paul tends to get sort of shoved down. I've read books by liberal theologians saying that Jesus brought a, you know, a doctrine of peace, revolutionary spirit then paul corrupts everything don't, don't do don't do that all scripture is inspired of god but even if you like just the red letters understand you only got the red letters through apostles because jesus didn't write any of the new testament directly his apostles did you can't appeal to jesus without going through the apostles. You don't know anything about Jesus. You don't know anything Jesus said without his apostles' writings. In fact, some of the red letters appear in Paul's writings. Second Corinthians, he himself said it's better to give than to receive. That's a saying of Jesus in Second Corinthians. So there are some red letters you're only gonna be able to find if you go to a letter of Paul. Don't, don't do that, as if you could pit the sun against the spirit, as if the words of the sun are somehow greater than the words of his spirit. Don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Second, do not pit the old against the new. Stay hitched. Don't unhitch the Old Testament. It was Jesus' Bible. It's what he argued from. It's what he reasoned from. You read through your New Testament, they're doing nothing but quoting the Old Testament, except 1 Timothy 5, 18, where they quote the New Testament. But other than that, they're just quoting the Old Testament again and again and again. And again, do not pit the old against the new. And that's the other common attempt. You know, the Old Testament's got the difficult things with the genocide, and the law of Moses, and some of its difficulties regarding Israelite slavery practices. And so couldn't we just sort of mm, distance ourselves from that? It, it, it won't work. Most of the arguments of the New Testament are built upon the Old Testament. You couldn't follow Paul's reasoning without an Old Testament. You couldn't make sense of Jesus and the Gospels without an Old Testament. And you wouldn't be acting like Jesus if you unhitched and jettisoned the Old Testament. James, in our study of James, what's the royal law? You shall love your neighbors yourself. What's that? That's Leviticus 19. The second greatest commandment's Leviticus 19. 1 Corinthians 10.11 makes this statement. Paul has been in 1 Corinthians 10, and, and I don't even know if we're going to get to our third point this morning, but we'll see what happens here. Um, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 has been, has been reminding the Corinthians about the events of the Old Testament, particularly Israel's faithlessness, the sexual sin at Peor, the grumbling, the serpents biting them. And then he makes this amazing statement to first century Corinthians. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. Book of Numbers 
which accounts the immorality at Peor, the book of Numbers was written for the Corinthians' instruction. Yes, oh, it was written for the Jews as well, but it's written for our instruction. The, the Old Testament is a Christian book. It's written for Christians. It's written for us. So, so don't pit the New Testament against the Old. Don't pit Paul against Jesus. All scripture is inspired of God. And don't carve out your favorite little places and then the danger zones you don't go anywhere near. Usually we only do that because we want to hold on to other things we hold dear. That the test of your view of the authority of scripture is not what you do with those scriptures you find beautiful, those scriptures you agree with. The test of the authority of scripture for you, whether you're under it or over it, is what do you do with those passages that you understand I'm not talking about hard to understand passages. The passages that are pretty plain and clear, they're just hard. I don't like what it says. Now what do you do? That's, that's where we find out who's boss. That's where we find out who has authority. I, I use the example frequently. It takes me no authority to give you 20 bucks. It requires authority on my part and that you recognize for me to say, open your wallet, give me $20. That, that's the test of authority. If you just come to the Bible and only read and only hold to those parts you like, the Bible doesn't reveal God to you, it reveals you to you. It becomes a mirror that just reflects back to you all the things you already thought, and all the parts of the Bible that you don't agree with, all those parts of the Bible that you don't like, they don't say anything because you've silenced them. You've put them to the sidelines. Don't do that. You won't end faithfully. I'm telling you, you talk to Pastor Daniel again and again and again, this is one of the most common paths to apostasy. In, in the church, with church leaders. You begin to become embarrassed of certain parts of the Bible, and then you begin to unhitch from them, and then you begin to just sort of move into your little circle of Jesus. And the Sermon on the Mountain, we just sort of hang there, and you're not gonna make it to the end. You're not gonna hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You're gonna, you're gonna fall away. Paul wants Timothy to be certain of the fact that all Scripture is God breathed. Not some of it, not most of it, but all of it. All of it. Okay, that's point one. We might be able to get through point two. Okay, here we go. Next, scripture is sufficient for every good work. Scripture is sufficient for every good work. Now here I'm jumping to the end of 17. The, the flow, if we're looking at 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. My third point that I don't think we're going to have time for this morning is going through that teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And I'm jumping to the end because I want to make a, a significant point first. I want to make the point he makes at the end first that every good work, don't miss the implications of this, Scripture is claiming its sufficiency for every good work. What does that mean? Here's what, the, here's what Paul is saying to Timothy as a, as a ballast, as a foundation for him to finish faithfully, is to know that Scripture, and here's your blank, equips you for everything God requires of you. Scripture does not claim its sufficiency for everything. I had to put together some Ikea bookcases, not bookcases, um, bunk beds this week. And the scripture was insufficient for telling me how to put them together. I'd argue the Ikea instructions were equally insufficient. <laughs> that's another matter. But the Bible doesn't claim its sufficiency for putting together Ikea bunk beds. 
doesn't claim its deficiency to teach you how to fly a jet airplane. The claim is that the man of God may be competent or complete, equipped for every good work. So the domain of Scripture's deficiency is good works, what God requires of you. Peter puts it this way in 2 Peter 1, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness or every good work. So practically what that means, and here's your next blank, is in the sphere of its sufficiency, in the sphere that Scripture claims it is sufficient, it requires, it needs no supplemental information. It needs no supplemental information. And in our day, I think a lot of professing Christians are in danger of not outright denying the inerrancy the God-breathedness of Scripture, but to close their Bibles in a vast majority of life events and places because they're convinced the Bible has nothing to say to it and what they need is secular wisdom and help. So, so ha let me give you a brief little exercise to help sort out does the Bible claim its sufficiency for a given topic? Okay. What about, just a little examples here, resisting temptation? Does that fall into the category of a good work? Is it a good work to resist temptation? If you know the answer, you just shout it out. It's okay. This is easy, low-hanging fruit. Okay, they're going to get harder. So if you're, if you're growing weary with the youths, how are you going to run with horses? That's what I want to know. Um, yes, resisting temptation, battling your anger, right? Those are clear. That's a good work. Okay, next one. Is it an issue of good works and righteousness whether you're a Hawkeyes or a Cyclones fan? Greg Sweet. Greg Sweet's going to have a word with me afterwards. But, but no, I, I would say no. Okay. What about when to potty train your kid? No. Now, probably that you potty train your kid eventually. The Bible has something about not remaining an infant. You could probably get there by good reasoning that parents should have some involvement in maturing, growing their kids so they're not wearing diapers at 30. But when, no. Right? Fair enough. Okay. What about depression? Sorrow? joy, rejoicing, hope. Now we're getting a little more complicated because some of the medical community suggests that there's physiological causes for depression. There may be. To my knowledge, some thyroid factors can deal with emotions. And, and here's the danger. This is, I picked, pick a blended case because there are voices claiming, hey, th there's a physical component here. And we certainly know that with the mind and with thought, damage to the brain can, can alter thought and thinking and memory and things like that. Fair enough. Here, here's the point. The moral portions of depression still remain moral. Jesus says the sick need to see a doctor. Go see a doctor. If there's something not working right, your thyroid's not working properly, your brain, great. The danger that I see again and again is Christians say once they see any hint that there's a non-spiritual component, they close their Bibles and they go to the secular therapist, specialist, as if hope, joy, grief, sorrow don't remain ethical spiritual issues. So it might be blended. You might be needing to work with a doctor and praying and reading your Bible. And then there's the whole modern psychological school that wants to horn its way in and, and people begin to act like the Bible's great if you have small problems. 
But if you got big issues, you need a specialist. And again, it's, the scripture claims its sufficiency for every good work for life and godliness. And point three here, point three, in comparison to scripture's truth, all outside claims lack biblical certainty. All outside claims lack biblical certainty. Now, it's not the case that unbelievers can't come up with anything that's true. We know that because Paul in Titus cites a Cretan philosopher who truly said, Cretans are liars, lazy, lazy beasts, and gluttons. And Paul says, this testimony is true. So he's quoting a pagan poet. I think he says that he got that one right. So it's not saying Freud, Jung, Skinner, Einstein can't come up with things that are true. They very well can. What those truth claims lack is this unchanging certainty of Scripture. In my lifetime, I've lived through the DSM-3, the DSM-4, and now the DSM-5, Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Psychological Conditions. And guess what? They change. They're not set in stone. They're still figuring things out. And theories they had 10 years ago have been replaced by new theories, even in science. I mean, just Einstein alone and relativity coming in, dealing with Newtonian physics. Massive changing. And no one in the sciences and no one in these fields thinks we've arrived, that there isn't more refinement, more work to do. So yeah, we can, we can get planes to fly and we can get phones to do video chatting. But the truth claims outside of scripture, it, maybe this is a helpful way of thinking it, are tentative lowercase t truth claims. So, so practically, here's, here's an analogy I want to leave you with. If you really believe scripture is sufficient for every good work, then we're going to start there. It's not to say we can't find useful, helpful things from other fields, counseling fields, parenting fields, but we know we have everything we need here. And we also know the truth claims outside of scripture are tentative, perhaps, and they're certainly not necessary. We, what we can't say is we need Freud to counsel people. We need Young. We need Skinner. We need Dr. Phil. We don't. Um, but you can't say, those things might be helpful, and they might be true. But if the Bible does equip you for every good work, and if it needs no supplemental information, we're going to be starting with Scripture and very cautiously and very secondarily bringing in other things. But what I see again and again, and I'm, I'm highlighting this because this is practically where Christians abandon this truth in practice, is I read so many books that start with, here's what we already know outside of the Bible. We know this from experience. We know this from modern psychologists. We know this from science, whatever. And then we move to the Bible, and we find some convenient way to fit it into the Bible. So when the whole self-esteem craze was going through the culture, um, guys like Dobson would, oh, we know this is true. Guess what? Jesus says you can't love your neighbor. You must love your neighbor as yourself. There's self-love. And the reason you and I are having a hard time loving our neighbors, we really don't love ourselves. And what clearly is happening in that type of argument is you're starting with a truth claim outside of the Bible, that's the authority, and then you're moving to Scripture with it and you're trying to wedge it in. Start with the Bible. Treat the Bible as though it really has the answers you need and don't so quickly close it and go off to something else. I'll, I'll, I'll close with this analogy and we will actually sing our closing song because I'm lopping off point three. Um, 
Imagine your house had two faucets. Here's what I want to compare this to. Imagine your house has two faucets. When I grew up, we, we had a camp we'd go to, and there was one of those pump faucets. You know the ones I'm talking about? I mean, you be careful, you'll crush your knuckles, and you've got to prime it, and you, it works up a sweat. Imagine your house had one of those pump faucets. And it took a while, it took a lot of work. Sometimes you'd even need someone to help you pump it. But it was hooked up to a natural spring with nothing but pure, life-giving, good water. And then imagine you've got another faucet right next to it. It's just one of those easy turn-on ones, but it's hooked up to pipes that's got some lead in it, some bad things in it, and it gives uncertain waters. Sometimes the water it gives is just as healthy, just as good, but it's also possible to give poisonous water, sickening water, bad water. You just don't know. And that's, that's what I'm saying you've got. You've got Scripture, which is hard work sometimes. You might need someone to help you working with Scripture. What does Scripture have to say about this this, this issue in my life, this problem, this issue of good works. And you've got everything else. Which one of those two sources of water would you be bringing water to your family? I'm pretty sure you, like me, would do nothing but pump and do the hard work. Why would you take the risk? If, if, if the scripture has the answers we need, if the scripture is sufficient, then why would you turn someplace else? Paul tells this to Timothy because he knows that it is essential for Timothy to finish faithfully, that he can finish and hold fast and persevere in trusting the scriptures and not to grow embarrassed of them, not to move beyond them. Look at, look at Paul at the end of his life in chapter four. 2 Timothy 4. I'll call the worship team up. We'll, we'll, let's read this first and we'll, we will uh, move on. Um, 2 Timothy 4, verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas in love with the world has deserted me. Um, bring Mark, he's useful for me for ministry. Um, look at verse 13. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Paul is finishing faithful. He's finished his course, and he has not moved beyond needing Scripture and God's Word. You and I will not either. Get, get that firmly fixed. Don't doubt it. Don't compromise it. 